0: We're building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On the Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. Just before we get into today's episode, we'd like to invite you to subscribe to our weekly devotional group. Just text the two words Promise Keepers" to 31996. Every week you'll receive a challenging devotional that will inspire you to put your faith into action in the real world. Again, text Promise Keepers to three one nine nine six. And now here's today's show.
1: Hey, today we get to talk to Oz Guinness, one of my good friends, uh, one of the wisest men in America, the modern-day C.S. Lewis, on where are we going as a society today? How are Christians supposed to process what they see and think and feel? From a guy who knew Winston Churchill danced in the fountains with Joan Baez uh, in the 60s and then has become one of the great uh, Christian leaders of our day. He used to go over the sermons of Billy Graham before he preached them. Uh, so join us for our conversation with Oz Guinness. So Oz Guinness, um, really the C.S. Lewis of our time, it went down to the accent. I mean, you got it all going on. And um, you have written about stuff about uh, Christian thought in the government. And, it, and those are emerging today more than ever before because when we look at what's going on with COVID, I mean, you and I are right down the street from each other. I'm sitting here at Museum of the Bible. You live in D.C. Uh, we love to get together in person when we're here, but because of COVID and all the risks involved, we're doing this virtually. Um, so you're, you're seeing the nexus right now of where Christian um, thought and worldview is meeting the secular. And what's the responsibility of people in this age? I've seen Christian men going around not wearing masks, and, and they, they consider this to be sort of an act of, of righteous defiance, where others others would see this as in just being inconsiderate and, and, and empathetic to people who are at risk. And so you've thought these all this stuff through really deeply, Oz. And so as we get into all this today, I'm really looking forward to what you have to say about these issues. Where does freedom um, intersect with um, just being a considerate, loving Christian, right?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, it's a great privilege to be with you, Ken. For me, the COVID, the coronavirus, has hit at the whole notion of human control. You know, the idea in the secular world that with reason and science and technology, we can control everything. And COVID's reminded us, we are not in control. But I think we have to look deeper in understanding where America is. And I like to put that in three words, revolution, question mark, oligarchy, question mark, or homecoming. Mm. Now, as you know, the radical left and the way it comes out of cultural Marxism, that's revolution. Please God, no. Oligarchy, We're now having increasingly, not democracy, not monarchy, but an elite-run ruling class consolidating politics, the media, and a whole lot of other things, including woke business. And they now are the best and brightest, telling us, the rest of us, how we should live. And that's very dangerous. That's the whole question. Then the third thing, homecoming, you know the Hebrew word for repentance, which is teshuva, has at its heart the notion of homecoming. No, it's when we sin, we're exiled from the Lord. We're alienated. And then when we face up to it, we come home. America needs to come home. The roots of this country through the Reformation were in the Old Testament, Exodus, Deuteronomy, and we've lost touch with those roots. So many Americans are following the wrong revolution.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I want to get into that, too, because you have an awesome thing. You talk about the difference between the French and the U.S. Revolution. Um, let's go back, because I, I want to establish why you know so much about this stuff, how you've thought so deeply about it. So, Oz, let's go all the way back to when you were a kid and you were a missionary kid in China when Mao came in and took over. And, and I think you were under house arrest as a boy for, like, what, two years and your parents for mm-hmm. four? Yeah. What was that like? I mean, you watched... China, which was the victim of the Japanese in World War II, suddenly become this completely different type of society as a child.
2: Well, they'd have a civil war for decades. And then the Japanese killed 17 million in that invasion. And then we were in a part of China where there was a terrible famine. Five million died in three months. And then we moved to what's Nanjing, Nanking then. And it was the capital... And slowly the noose was tightening and Lin Bau's Red Army was coming. And I remember the day they took over. But you know, I was seven years old when I first began to get a clue. And we went to, you know, we parties at the American Embassy. And one day there was this huge crate. And I said to a friend, What on earth is that? Thinking it must be a tank or something, he said, No, that's a Buick, a little car. <laughs> what? American cars were colossal compared with European cars. But The embassy closed, in came the troops, trials. The the town was festooned with loudspeakers. There were trials in the morning, executions in the afternoon by the hundreds and thousands. And many Christians, many of my father's friends, arrested, indoctrinated, tried, falsely accused, and many of them tortured and executed. So I remember the reign of terror very well. So that gave me a very, put it mildly, a healthy dose of Marxism from the beginning but you know later i was at oxford and one of the great tutors there was isaiah Berlin, and we became friends of a sort because when he was seven the same age i was in china and he was a lot older than i was he was in the russian revolution at age seven and wow. he was a mob attacking a policeman and lynching him and it left him with a horror of marxism mob violence ever since since he and i would share notes but extraordinary this is nearly 50 years ago the one thing we never thought you'd see anything like it in america because americanism the american dream and so on was always reckoned to be the surrogate the 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 substitute for things like revolution you wouldn't need it here you wouldn't even need socialism let alone marxism Hmm. and yet you can see in the last 20 years that extraordinary difference in this country
1: and you you met winston churchill when you were what a teenager i mean we need a winston churchill-like figure today don't we? i mean that guy i don't think most americans understand how winston was literally standing against the entire world for a while yeah when tell Um, tell someone you met in winston
2: well he was my first prime minister and then when he was prime minister the second time uh, he lived at Chartwell, very close to a, a town where I had friends living, and I was with them one weekend, and the great man was walking across the village green. So we went out. Great you man. <laughs> you know. But he, I, I've never known anyone with such incredible rhetoric and oratory, but a great sense of history and immense courage. So you say we need a Churchill. I often say to Americans, we need Lincoln. Mm. Because at the similar divided time in the 1850s, he believed in the declaration. He addressed the evil slavery, but he believed in what he called the better angel of the American nature. And, you know, so President Biden talks about restoring the soul of America. And former President Trump talked about make America great again. But neither of them discussed what made America great in the first place. And that's what Lincoln did. So we need a Churchill, a Lincoln, uh, you know, Pat Cadell would say, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Someone like Jimmy Stewart, who just will stand up as an ordinary person, speak the truth. I'm not American. But the thing that makes me saddest, sometimes angriest, is the lack of
1: leadership addressing the deep issues. Mm. So I mean, just just coming back up through the history a little bit because of all the people that you've known, Oz. I mean, we've had so many great conversations. Um, you've you've previewed Billy Graham's sermons. I mean, that's that's just amazing. Um, you've known John Stott. You've known, um, oh shoot, who was the guy from Switzerland? Prince uh, the- Schaefer. Schaefer, yeah. I mean, you've known all those guys. You went to free rock concerts in Hyde Park. Mm-hmm. You were at the Isle of Wight Music Festival. I mean, you—I mean, you lived like the greatest <laughs> '60s life ever. The '60s was ex- well. First came here in '68, and you
2: remember Martin Luther King had been assassinated. Senator as as Kennedy was assassinated. Hundred American cities were ablaze, and we went around. I met Mario Savio, who led the free speech movement at Berkeley in '64. We went to. Fillmore West and Grace Slick and Jefferson Airplane. But you're referring a bit later. I think it was 1970. I was at the Isle of Wight with Bob Dylan and 100,000, and then had the great privilege of dancing in the fountain with Joan Baez at the Montreux Jazz Festival. So the 60s was enormous fun, but also at another level, deeply serious. Mm. The most radical
1: decade in american 20th century history culturally speaking and i bring that up because um i want people to understand that you've seen the entire sort of spectrum of of the west's freedom and you've seen the west decline you were at oxford you you knew billy Graham well, yet you were part of the rock and roll scene of the 60s so really you have a very unique voice into what's going on today and so it's fun to talk to you about all these different things but it's also incredibly important because you're not just some guy who, and not to des- denigrate anybody else, but you didn't just graduate from seminary and sit around writing books for the last 50 years. You really have lived life. You've really talked to and spent lots of time with the great minds of Christendom, and you've experienced all all these different things. So you have a unique input into what we're seeing today, this decline into socialism, even communism in America. And when we talk about socialism, I think People mean different things but we're really talking about sort of a mob rule almost um you know i just i landed last night and i'm walking around georgetown and everybody is outside wearing a mask like everybody they're terrified i spent a lot of time in florida and i live in colorado and nobody's wearing a mask and yet we see no difference between the people here who are walking around in, in the heat with masks on and the people in florida and colorado who are not wearing masks and there's no difference in the infection rate But Ken, take the, I mentioned 68 when I
2: first came to this country. That was the uh, the radicals, the new left, Herbert Marcuse, people like that. They said, we will not win in the streets, although the radicalism was far more strident than even last year. So they called for the long march through the institutions. In other words, do it slowly. Win the high schools, colleges, universities. Win the press and media and win Hollywood and entertainment. So you do an end run, and then you win the cultural gatekeepers, and you sweep down and win American culture. So you look at things today, people are concerned with say cancel culture or the speech codes, but they all came from the cultural Marxism, which produced stuff like critical race theory. The tragedy is that many of our fellow believers don't understand where these things came from. Hmm. Even Nietzsche, whom we disagree with radically, he says, to understand an idea, you need to know its genealogy, its ancestry, its family tree. And critical race theory and cancel culture goes back to a cultural Marxism, which has been around since the 1920s. And it is deadly to the gospel. So you have two competing revolutions today one the radical left has come out of the french revolution and the other the biblical revolution coming from the book of exodus and deuteronomy i call it the sinai revolution they two are very very different but many christians don't understand where it came from nor do they really appreciate those profound differences
1: so what does the average parent the average father uh, since this is largely a promise keeper's audience do um in light of all that we see all this media coming at us all this stuff and guys like you know these are old ideas these are not new ideas these are rehashed failures that just they've just gussied up with new lipstick and thrown them back out there again how do we fight those in our families our kids our churches and our communities um what do we what do we do us i mean should there be something that we're reading something that we're watching well let me answer on two levels ken one i hope this is not too abstract
2: the American Constitution comes from the Hebrew, the Jewish biblical notion of covenant. And at the heart of covenant is freely chosen consent. Three times, it says in Exodus, all that the Lord says, we will do. They signed on. There's a morally binding place. So you mentioned promise keepers. Promise keeping, keeping our word, sticking by truth and being truthful and faithful, And reliable is the heart of american citizenship so there's nothing more important than promise keepers do than men keeping their word in every area now you're referring to something much more practical too take the sexual revolution if you read someone like wilhelm reich who's the architect of the term writing in the 1920s he says they will never win unless they overcome two enemies One, parents, and two, the church. Now, you think of parents. That's why they want sex education at three and four to sideline parents. So it's incredibly important, not just for strong families, but for the Christian faith and for citizenship, that we keep the importance of parental authority. Take, say, the parent in jail in Canada now because he refused to call his son a girl and so on you can see they're undermining parents we got to stand there but deepen that the whole notion of truth trustworthiness high truth societies can be high freedom societies low truth societies are low trustworthy and low freedom so promise keeping is the heart of the solution to the american crisis it's not just a movement on the fridges All of you who understand
1: Promise Keepers, you're at the very heart of the crisis and its solution. Okay, so let's go back. You talked about the long march, and you and I had a long conversation about this in Amelia Island, and you asked me, okay, if you're going to take over Promise Keepers, what is the long march? So you brought up the fact that what we're seeing today didn't just drop out of the air. This has been in process for probably a hundred years but we've seen the real process of it in the last 50 in the, in the 60s revolution and you tied that in the long march you're referring to mao coming when you were a boy through china and taking over china on a long march so just give us the the quick background on that story so that we can now tie it into what you're talking about now which is the secularists taking over with their religion mm-hmm to display Christianity.
2: Well, Mao's Long March was actually before I was born. That was 1934. Oh, it was? He no. was encircled.
1: Hey, by- I went to Oregon State, not Oxford. So, hey, I do the best I can. He was encircled <laughs> by Chiang Kai-shek's troops. They should have crushed him
2: and there would have been no communism. But he broke out of the circle and did the Long March, a 6,000 mile detour to the north of China and then swept down and slowly won the whole enchilada. In other words, that was their precedent. So they weren't going to do it in the streets. They would slowly infiltrate the professors. And you can, you know, see how many of the left-wing tenured professors were the rot of some of this. So it's been 50 years in the universities, although the ideas have been, as you say, 70 or 90 years back in Europe and coming over here and so on. But we should have seen it because it swept slowly through the universities, and we cannot just answer it politically. I would argue that the secularism that we're seeing now has at its heart a hatred of God. Solzhenitsyn used to say that. If you look at it, Born in the French Revolution again, you have three ideas coming together. We don't want God. We don't need God. And now through biogenetics and all that, We can replace God. And so we're seeing never has secularism been so powerful,
1: and it has an innate hostility towards faith in Christ. You know, as someone, I've walked with Christ since I was five years old. So my entire worldview has to do with the the basic biblical worldview that we're sinners and we're saved by grace. And I don't for the life of me understand how normal people get through the world who don't know Christ. As you're getting older, as you're seeing uh this covid thing you know wipe people out um i don't understand how someone could say we don't need god everybody we know all through history everybody dies there is no hope as you get to 80 and 90 and 100 years old you're going to die and so i don't understand not wanting to throw your yourself onto the the grace of the creator they're talking about christianity and so i'm not talking about people who live in sort of agnosticism or ignorance but people who hostilely attack god and say we don't need you i mean how how is our frailty not obvious to people Oz? i mean you've you've looked into these things deeply for many many years i don't understand it but take the second of those three impulses that we don't need god
2: we have never been more prosperous more powerful in this country I said COVID attacks that sense of comfort, convenience, and control, but we're remarkably in control compared, to, say, with earlier centuries, so that you do have a sense. You remember you know, Moses warns the Israelites when you get to the promised land and you have houses and so on, you think, we've done all this ourselves. No, no, it's all a gift of the Lord. So that's an old sin, and it's at the heart of the American forgetting of God. As Solzhenitsyn says, men have forgotten God because we think we can be self-reliant. I'm a great uh, believer in the principle, contrast is the mother of clarity. When people see the alternatives, they wake up. And you remember when Elijah was talking to the nation, 850 prophets against him, the royal court against him. He didn't say, like many preachers today, come back to God, come back to God, or Israel will fall apart. He, He had the guts to say, if Baal is God, Follow Baal. Now, why can he say that? Because he knows Baal is not God. Now, tragically, you take things like transgenderism, the harvest of loneliness, despair, psychological confusion, and various things like that that we are sowing now that will be reaped in a generation or two is unbelievable. But as you know well, when people start to reap that, they will go, wow, is this what we bought? Buyer's remorse in a, 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 on a national level. So they will reap it and they will see it. And our challenge is to raise the questions now so people can see it and turn around, i.e., repent, before it's too late.
1: Because, as you know, uh, leading back to the French Revolution versus the American Revolution, is that buyer's remorse comes after millions and millions of people have been slaughtered, mm-hmm. property has been confiscated, lives have been destroyed. And the people go, oops. Uh, and they never seem to learn from history. And so talk about one of the great speeches that you give the difference between the American revolution, which was choice and freedom versus the French revolution, which was class warfare.
2: Well, I argue the deepest divisions today are rooted in that the difference between two revolutions. So the American revolution rooted in the scriptures, you take, say the realism of its view of human nature. Because people are sinners, you need a separation of powers, checks and balances, which comes not from Montesquieu and people, like that comes from the Old Testament. They had the king, the priest, and the prophet, which they call the three crowns of government, the separation of powers. That's just one thing. Now, all that we're seeing that we've talked about so far, the radical left, PLM and all that, comes from the French Revolution. And they're so different at every level. But we've got to be absolutely clear marxism whether classical marxism or cultural marxism or whatever never works and always ends in oppression and it will in this country too so you know reinhold Niebuhr used to say the bookends of history are authoritarianism order no freedom or anarchy which is freedom and no order And the biblical way and formerly the American way was what's called ordered freedom, freedom within the covenant, within a constitution. And that's breaking down. So we've got to be very clear about the alternatives and challenge our neighbors and our fellow citizens. What are they going to choose? Choices have consequences. The two revolutions take this year. The issue, George Floyd, has been justice. Now, here's a place, when it comes to freedom, there's a total difference. The French Revolution has no grounds for freedom at all. Surprising to people, atheism has no grounds for freedom. People are determined. When it comes to justice, that's not so. We both agree there is injustice. What happened to many people in American history, the Native Americans, the blacks, was unjust, evil. Let's make no bones about it the difference comes in how you respond critical race theory sets everything up as a power struggle and it ends in a new type of despotism the bible take the prophets you have truth addressing power a call to repentance confession forgiveness reconciliation and restoration of shalom now those are just single words when i say them like that but if you unpack them they are the solution to america's problems today you take the idea forgiveness and freedom are linked when someone's forgiven the past is free they're gone the burden's gone pilgrim's progress or a prisoner in jail or anyone and the future is now opened up as a future of a second chance. Forgiveness is essential to freedom. The radical left, you read a book like Douglas Murray's, The Dangerous Madness of Crowds. He's an atheist and gay, but he says radical left is merciless. No mercy, no forgiveness. If you're guilty, statue down. You're guillotined or whatever. The gospel is so different, and freedom depends on it. So we all agree there is injustice, but we're radically different in how we respond to it.
1: So we're going to go through this little break right here, and then we come back out. I want to talk about, I want to unpack a little bit more about what does that mean, the gospel for freedom? And also, if someone's listening to this who's black or American Indian or an illegal alien and they're saying, well, how did the American Revolution help me? I want to unpack that for them as well so that we're all in this together, right?
0: Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone. For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities, like Promise Keepers, by crafting customized, innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan, utilizing business interests, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org. And now, back to today's show. Promise Keepers is back and we're relaunching the stadium events that brought millions of men to Christ.
1: Join us this July at AT AT&T Stadium in Dallas, Texas for a men's conference like no other. Strengthen your soul with unforgettable worship led by top Christian artists. Form friendships with brothers in Christ that last a lifetime. And discover new tools and strategies that will empower you to follow Jesus more faithfully. Be sure to get your tickets before they sell out or find a simulcast location near you. Visit www.promisekeepersevent.com for the latest information. We'll see you this summer. So we're talking to Oz Guinness, the C.S. Lewis of our age, and um, we're talking about French Revolution versus American Revolution. And I'm, I'm posing two tough questions to Oz. The first one is, um, yeah, we talk about the American Revolution. I, I got a, a, a text from a friend of mine last July fourth who was black, and it was a little thing and it said it had some a picture of what would have been slaves, I guess. Um, saying, you know, when the Declaration of Independence was signed, it didn't help my people. And I argued to him, Well, of course it did. See, your people may have been slaves or may not have. My people, the Harrisons, were Northern Ireland potato farmers who came over here as immigrants. And when that was signed it created freedom both for my people who were potato farmers who had no idea what was going on and yours wherever they were because it resulted in the freedoms we have today and so I want to unpack that because right now we see in this sort of critical race theory and and explain to us what that is too so that because we, we assume people may know what we're talking about and then why was that moment so important the American Revolution for all people everywhere throughout the world and then let's talk about um, how we've got to stop waiting for college kids to wake up from the nonsense like a lot of us did who are my age. So first of all, what is critical race theory? And then why should uh, uh, someone who's black, uh, illegal alien, American Indian, why should they care? Well, critical race theory
2: starts with two concerns, what they call hegemony or dominance and antagonisms. So they analyze the way people speak in a culture, asking who's the majority? Is the minority who are the oppressors who's the victim so once you've identified who are the victims and they're not interested in individuals they use individuals as props or pawns to describe a group who are victims and then they use that group to try and overthrow the status quo that that's their tactics why is this important well put it in a big way if you look at human history slavery is the norm. Abolition is the novelty. You mentioned we're both Irish. The Irish were slaves to the Romans and to the Muslims in North Africa. Slavery is the norm in human history. Abolition is the novelty. And thank God it was led by followers of Jesus. So, Bartolome las Casas in 16th century Spain John Woolman, the Quaker here in America, or William Wilberforce in England, they were all followers of Jesus. And thank God, abolition is tied. I'm so grateful that my family, Arthur Guinness and so on, the brewery, they were supporters of William Wilberforce.
1: So for me, Wait, pause, right, pause right there. Everyone listen to that. Your ancestors started Guinness beer. I just want to make sure we're clear that you are that Oz Guinness. <laughs> I would like to shake your grandfather's hand.
2: And they were evangelicals, Ken. Mm-hmm. They came to faith under John Wesley, and the whole philanthropy and generosity in the brewery grew out of that. But they backed things like the abolition of slavery. So thank God it was evangelicals who took the lead. Now, go to the American Revolution. There was a terrible contradiction, hypocrisy, evil, at the core. So Thomas Jefferson, the Declaration of Independence, the author, he had six slaves. No, he had two with him in Philadelphia as he was writing that. He had more than 60, I believe, in his lifetime, and maybe 60 back at one And that was the hypocrisy. The Europeans saw that. Wilberforce pleaded with Jefferson to have what he called a concert of benevolence. England and America would unite in driving the slave trade off the ocean. Jefferson said no. Or Samuel Johnson, the world's first dictionary, he said, I'm not quoting exactly, but something like this, why is it those who are yelping about freedom, his word, are the drivers of Negroes? He could see an ocean away, a massive contradiction. But the point is, it wasn't in the DNA. It was a hypocrisy, a contradiction. And sadly, Lincoln tackled it. But with his assassination, Jim Crow and so on, it took Martin Luther King. Now, critical race theory depends that America's unredeemable, you know, innately racist, homophobic, uh, imperialist, etc., we as Christians would say no, tragically, sin, as in Genesis 3, almost at the beginning, got to root it out. There must be repentance. It must be put right. But it's not at the very nature of the American experiment.
1: So let's put that into scriptural terms a little bit uh, more gr- granular than what you just said. Essentially, what critical race theory does is you're condemned because of how you were born your skin color whether you are in the majority or the minority you are just simply condemned and of course what the gospel says is every individual stands alone before the almighty god the creator we're all sinners and if we just believe in him he will lead us to the repentance of sin and he will come and dwell in us and so what no matter what color you are what creed or how you were born you can be utterly and completely transformed from the inside out by the gospel so critical race theory which is taking over america right now says you stand condemned and you will never not be condemned because you happen to belong to this certain class or you're not condemned and everything you do is great because you belong to this oppressed class is that about right
2: magnificently put ken but i would say we also need to explore and as you've expressed the heart of the gospel magnificently but today we need to go and explore all the great biblical truths you say Human dignity. There is nothing like the Genesis Declaration that we are made in the image of God. So as you know, you see in Proverbs, the person who mistreats a neighbor insults his maker. And so that there's nothing like the biblical view of human dignity. Or take truth. For critical race theory, cultural Marxism, God is dead and truth is dead. Everything's only power. Well, if there's only power, you will end up finally peace. is what the Romans called the peace of despotism. In other words, one power that can put down all other powers. But that's incredibly dangerous to freedom. Or you take the notion of words. There's nothing like a biblical view of words. The world created by a word. We can create worlds and destroy worlds with our words. So in the Old Testament, evil speech is almost tantamount to murder, the rabbis say. So we as followers of Jesus, yes, the gospel, you described that magnificently, but we need to bring out human dignity, truth, words, justice, and all these things. They're so much deeper and richer than any other alternative today. And we should be proud of them and confident of them. Too many Christians are on the back foot. We're defensive. No, the gospel itself and the whole of the scriptural truth is the key to a constructive
1: future. First Corinthians five, I think, really helps to back up what you're saying. Um, we're told about people to avoid. And yeah, the sexual perverse is in there and the greedy are in there, but so are slanderers and gossips. And so right there, we're thought, we're seeing that sexual perversion and greed are equated to people who use words to damage others. Both of those are true. And we as the church in America have too often looked at the visual things like a sexual perversion while we ourselves have been walking around and slandering our neighbor for no reason.
2: And, you know, something like the social media, which has to be quick and brief, you know, we have to. Watch ourselves because it's much easier to answer wittily, angrily, bitterly or whatever it is than to answer loving our neighbor or whatever. But we with a high view of loving the neighbor, respecting truth, always having a regard for people's human dignity. We've got to be different. Whereas too often we're not.
1: Uh, You know, it's it's a weird thing. We're learning a new social construct here and that, you know, you're talking about history throughout history uh at least of the west i don't know about other places from the west dueling was a major thing you had to deal with and you know you look at um uh, alexander hamilton you know losing an adult to aaron burr you had to be careful with your words because if you were insulting enough then someone could challenge you to a duel and if you didn't accept that duel then you were cast out of society and so your words could get you killed either way and then as dueling was eliminated uh, largely, by the way, because of your great, great, great grandfather um, who started Guinness beer. I think I got that right. But he was very much against dueling and put a lot of money into ending the dueling back then. But in the last hundred years, when dueling's sort of been out of style, um, we still had fist fighting. You know, if you, pre-social media 20 years ago, if you wanted to insult somebody, you had to do it to their face and risk getting punched in the face. But we're now, for the first time in the history of the world, going through a process where the normal average person can deeply insult and offend somebody else that they never encounter in a real life. Hmm. And so they risk no physical ramifications for using ignorant and insulting words. And and we, as a culture are trying to work our way through, how does this look? How do we deal with this? And so we become the, the perpetually offended and the perpetually offending. And it's a strange thing for us to work through right now. But we usually answer today with a negative. In other words, you sue someone or you
2: cancel something or you pull down a statue or whatever, whereas our stress should be on the positive. So, with dignity, with truth, with love, with justice, they're all actually the positive side that we need to stress. So, you know, um, Rodney Stark, in his great description of the early church, says again and again, through the way Christians lived, the pagans would say, Great is the God of the Christians. And we must so live differently today with our love, with our regard for truth, the way we talk to people on social media and all these things. People say, wow, Christians are different. We're not different enough today. We're the reflection of a miserable culture at the moment.
1: And how do you get there? I would just tell everybody right now saying, well, I'm I'm so locked into this phase of being offended and answering angrily and I don't know if I could change. I'm here to tell you, you can. And if you're doing that, it's because you're not in prayer every day. When you're on your knees confessing your sins to the Lord for the day before, it's amazing the transformation that occurs in your daily life. Um, because if you got to go and recount all the things that you said the day before, the people that you offended unnecessarily to the Lord, pretty soon you start doing it a lot less. And so I would say, for people who are going, "Gosh, I, I, I've maybe you know I'm 25 years old and I've just been doing this my whole life." Um, how do I change? You change by prayer, by prayer, going before the Lord on your knees. And I mean, take five minutes and it'll get longer as you grow in Christ. Confess the sins of the day before. It'll cause you to have to think through what I did and, and God will start to change it from the inside out. Oz, um, we talked a little bit, you know, at the, at the break that we had about how when I was in college in the 80s, Um, I remember them teaching us that gender was a social construct. It's hard for people who are younger going, really? They were doing that in the 80s? Yeah. But the difference was it was the first time any of us had heard it. And at 18, 19 years old, it was obvious to me. I just come through Marine Corps OCS that men and women were different. Obviously, if one person can get pregnant and one can't, that would completely change your perspective on things like sex, right? It wouldn't be a social construct. It would be a natural construct but we all knew that those were stupid ideas and we laughed at them and we all just went about our way. The difference between the eighties and now is that these young people now have been taught this since they started school. So they're not just jumping in these ideas now in college, but they're, they're learning these from the beginning of school and they're brainwashed so much by the time they're in their early twenties now that they literally have no idea. I mean, I ask young people all the time who tell me there's no difference. And I say, really? No. Well then why are there no women in the NFL? show me a a female linebacker in the NFL. So I guess there is major physical difference. I mean, this is obvious to anybody using their power sub observation. And if one gender is much stronger than the other gender, it would, again, just like pregnancy have a major impact on how you think. But we have been programmed all of us to think well the kids will wake up you know they'll get out of college they'll get in the real world and they'll start to see how things really are but they're not doing that anymore in fact they are taken over our corporations and now we have coca-cola and uh delta and, and major league baseball saying you know if you want to show your id before you vote you must be a racist and so we're, we're struggling with what is going on what i'm trying to do is get men out there to start being proactive we've got to stop this complacency that we've been lulled into by the devil saying well people will figure it out they'll wake up they're not going to wake up so what do we do to wake them up oz what do we do to get our fellow americans christians the church first and then americans how do we get people to wake up and start seeing through these issues that you're talking about well
2: it's a big one ken goes deeply into a whole number of areas but starting at where you began For 2,000 years, our Western culture, shaped partly by the Greeks, but mainly by the scriptures and the gospel, has the notion of what's natural and biblically what's created and given. Whereas the modern view, secularist, cultural Marxist, everything is constructed. Nothing is given. So male, female, all these things, you blur the boundaries, abolish the binaries, as they put it, And everything is social constructed. And what you feel matters. So now even the flouting of your body. If I feel I'm more a woman today or tomorrow, I might feel the other. It's what you feel that matters. So this notion of social construction is terribly, terribly important. Today, there are no givens. And that is a difference that's rooted in completely different worldviews. Now, let me go back one deeper than that. The rabbis say, what did Moses talk about the night of the Passover? They're going free. He didn't talk about freedom. He didn't talk about the promised land of milk and honey. Three times he talked about children. And he told them how to tell the story to their children. Because telling the story is the secret of identity and continuity. So as they put it, if any project lasts longer than a single generation, you need schools and you need history. Now put that in American terms, civic education in the public school used to teach people what it meant to be American. That went out in the 60s, thrown out. And now you have Howard Zinn and people at the 1619 Project. So you've got rotten teaching about American history and you've got abominable teaching about human experience that you were describing, this social constructionism. But we've got to tackle it at its root now that means every family has got to be a little counterculture on its own with the fathers doing their best to keep up the crazy things their kids at three and four 14 15 21 22 will be taught in kindergarten in high school in college and so on we've got to keep our kids ahead of the game but we've got to reinsert solid
1: christian education too. As we start to wrap up, I want to lighten this up a little bit. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, I'm a huge rock and roll fan. Who who were the best groups that you saw in the 60s? What were the concerts that you saw that uh, you were like, man, Harrison, you should have been there? Besides Dancing in a Fountain with Joan Baez, maybe one of the greatest songwriters ever. Well, I, I,
2: I love a lot of the old folk, you know, Dylan, Baez, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Lightfoot, people like that. But my favorite bands, I've got to say, I love Dylan's backup group, The Band. Oh, they were great. um, Crosby, Sills, and Nash, and um, people like that. Simon and Garfunkel I absolutely love. And, you know, Paul Simon lives up not far from where my son is now in in Montauk. So I think there's no question that that 60s music, um, there's nothing like it. The dreadful stuff you have in a lot of areas today. The sexy stuff is so incredible, creative. I mean, I never met the Beatles, but they were pretty amazing too. With their, their, their melodies that they can throw up, which were just extraordinary.
1: Did you see there was a meme going around that uh, it, it shows a gal talking to the mechanic, and. Um... She says, did you get that awful sound out of my car? And he says, yes, ma'am. We replaced your Cardi B CD with a Led Zeppelin CD. <laughs> I'm
2: not sure Led Zeppelin would have been very much better. but
1: <laughs> Oh, come on, man. Led they were, were one of my favorites. Than them. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was very much a fan of the, the progressive. I like King Crimson and Yes and uh, Zeppelin and all those guys. So I mm-hmm. guess I liked a little bit more of the heavy stuff. Than yeah, you did, but- yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saw a BBC interview with uh, Robert Plant and uh, John Bonham from Led Zeppelin and they were saying, it was in 1969, they were saying, you know, we don't really understand this new music that you put out. I mean, you can't whistle to your songs. And it really, they thought, yeah, that was the difference in like 69. That's when sort of really melodic music, like the bands you mentioned, the Beatles, they were the ultimate, right, and in, in melody. And you had this whole new explosion of the Black Sabbaths and the Led Zeppelins, which... You really couldn't whistle yep. that music very well no that's right <laughs> so um hey uh as we close out i just want to get one last thought from you oz on where do we go from here and you've, you've given us a, a lot of gems a lot of really interesting things and i just i guess for my last thought i just want to tell people a lot of what oz says is really deep and i know that you're, you're hearing this going man that that's some deep stuff where do i get more pick up some of his books oz has written How many books do you have out? Oh, more than 30. More than 30 books. I've read a lot of them, probably half of them, and they're just excellent. And so a lot of the ideas he has are in his books. Um, How many of your books are on audio where people maybe who don't read a lot can actually grab it and and just listen to it on a long drive or
2: something? I've got one coming out next week called The Magna Carta of Humanity and what I call the Sinai Revolution. So there's a chapter on critical race theory and things that we've been discussing today. But Ken, answering your question, I think we're at an incredibly exciting time. Mm. So the decline of the West, the deep crisis of the American Republic, the emergence of China and authoritarianism, but then looking ahead, notions like singularity, And not just transgenderism, but transhumanism. This is an incredible moment for humankind. And at this moment, the deepest questions only have their real answers in the gospel. So for Christians to see, let's have no defensiveness or uncertainty. And the people are dropping out because of the scandals. That's pathetic. The only reason to believe is because the Christian faith is true and its truth is so relevant at this moment it really is the best news ever not just good news the best news ever at a most extraordinary moment for humanity
1: i think you just nailed it so if you're listening to this and you're thinking man i don't know what i can do well you can tell people about christ because there's nothing more effective at changing things to the truth than giving people the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so um, pick up a book by Greg Steer from dare to share, pick up something from crew, learn how to share your faith. I'll tell everybody out there, the most effective way I know to share my faith is I'll talk to people throughout the day or my server in a restaurant. And I'll just say, Hey, I'm going to be praying for my food right now. What can I pray for you for? And you can't believe the amount of stuff, the conversations I get in if I just simply ask somebody um, throughout the day, if there's one thing i could pray for you for what would it be and what that can lead to be prepared because i've sometimes spent two hours with somebody crying on my shoulder by the time it was all over but is there a more noble thing we could be doing than to share the good news of jesus christ with the lost and the needy oz love you man i wish you were here i wish we were hanging out and having one of our four hour long conversations but as soon as COVID is over or as yeah. soon as you get your vaccinations we can uh, we, we
2: will get back to it.
1: we will god
2: bless and thank you and God bless all your people listening. You know, those who are promise keepers, I couldn't take my hat off more in recognizing your significance at this hour.
1: Thanks for listening to On the Edge podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting and I want to tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization founded by Coach Bill McCartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Promise Keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership. To learn more and get involved in the mission of Promise Keepers, visit promisekeepers.org. Follow on social media or download the Promise Keepers app on Apple Store or Google Play by searching Promise Keepers. Through the Promise Keepers app, you'll receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, Another other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On the Edge with Ken Harrison. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place
0: for your listening enjoyment.
1: Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I app.